The following is a conversation between Anne-Marie Burgoyne, Managing Director for Social Innovation at the Emerson Collective, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. An organization that approaches social problems in a novel and innovative way is the Emerson Collective, an organization that was started by Lorene Powell Jobs. So to get their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, who is responding creatively to it, and what the impact might be to the social good sector, it's a pleasure to have with us Anne-Marie Burgoyne, the Managing Director of Social Innovation at the Emerson Collective. Welcome back to the Business of Giving, Anne-Marie. Thank you, Denver. How are you? Doing great. Excellent. For those who may not be familiar with your work, tell us about the Emerson Collective and what you do. I am glad to. The Emerson Collective is structured as an LLC and I lead the philanthropic piece of the organization. We do a lot of grant making. We also take on a lot of convenings and a lot of capacity building programs. We also have a team that does investing, both impact and venture. We have a set of teams that do communications, marketing and branding, and that's for the organization, our own initiatives, and also organizations in our both for-profit and nonprofit portfolios. We have an advocacy team out of Washington that primarily focuses on immigration and immigration reform. And we also have a convening team and a media team, which owns both for-profit and does a lot of supportive nonprofit organizations. So Emerson is kind of a complex place in an effort to go at social change with a variety of different tools. The big areas we focus on are education, immigration, and the environment, with a pretty strong social equity and social justice underpinning that runs throughout the organization. We also work with Arnie Duncan's Chicago Cred, which works with at-risk young men in Chicago. And we have an XQ Institute out of Oakland that focuses on high school redesign. Uh, so that is the Emerson Collective. And what I have found so interesting as I look at now is I have reflected philanthropy cannot fix where we are with COVID. It is such a complicated time and such a multivariate problem and I'm glad to be in a place that has more than philanthropy to lean back on because I don't think simply making more grants is going to help all of our community challenges or the organizations in our portfolio. I've also reflected that I'm glad that we've historically done general operating grants and I'm glad that we've been in conversation and community with the people that we work with because I do think it's allowed us to be able to be flexible from the start with our work and I also think it's allowed us to, to respond in ways that are flexible and responsive. I will also, I guess as a final observation, say I don't think there's a right way to approach where we are. I'm, I'm glad as I talk to foundation peers that different leaders have taken on where we are in very different ways because they have different networks. They have different resources at their disposal. And I think by having different leaders in different organizations take on the challenge in places where their assets best can grab into different solutions will give us a better opportunity to address as many needs as we can in the short term and in the long term, because I think we're going to have different reactive needs at different time continuum points. Yeah, I really agree with that. You know, somebody once observed that Google and going to it has killed our innovation a little bit because we all go to the first six things that come up and we follow down those tributaries. And it's interesting at a time like this, it's going out in different directions that are going to be that multiplicity of approaches, which we're going to need. And maybe none of them are going to work by themselves, but it's going to be a combination of them that yeah. might bring some of the answers that we need. Well, a very significant initiative that your founder and a number of other notables are involved with is America's Food Fund. Tell us about that and the progress it has been making. 
So the America's Food Fund, we're really excited about. We launched it a few weeks ago and we have some terrific partners involved. Leo DiCaprio, who we also work with on Earth Alliance, Oprah Winfrey, Apple, and our very good friend, the Ford Foundation. Darren mm-hmm. Walker has been greatly supportive. Our goal for that was really to get lots of food and lots of meals into communities around America. And so uh, the fund has two recipients currently. One is World Central Kitchen, which is Jose Andres's work, which brings hot meals, and hot meals really often means love, to many people in community, school children and their families. First responders are really important to Jose, seniors who often then require delivery, which is something he often takes on. And his work is also exploring a really important component about helping people who have historically worked at restaurants and the restaurants themselves to find a path to be part of food solutions, which I think will help as we look toward the economy finding its sea legs. And then we're also working with Feeding America, which is a tremendous organization. It is a gathering together of 200 food banks across the United States. They have 60,000 food pantries that are affiliated with them. So their reach in terms of getting to people is quite powerful. So America's Food Fund has been around now for a couple weeks. We've uh, deployed almost $14 million. And we're very appreciative to the, I'm going to say close to 12,000 Americans who've supported that fund in large and small ways, but in ways that were ones they could take on and the beautiful messages they've sent uh, to people in America about wanting to be a good neighbor have been really, really wonderful. I'll also note that we have a food task force. Arnie Duncan is leading it. Mitch Landrew is also involved with that work. And the task force is looking a lot through food provision um, on the national school lunch program level. So you might know this, but almost 30 million kids a day are in our lunch programs. And our school lunch programs have become an enormous muscle for delivering food across the United States and have made a lot of choices around serving children who might not be of school age, but live in a family, with a family, or parents who come to pick up food and they are also hungry. And so that task force is both looking at short-term changes, how to assure a parent can pick up multiple days worth of food or can come and pick up food without a child. And then they're looking at more long-term sorts of structural changes. And that's why that table not only has national leaders on it who are more political kinds of leaders, but also has a number of nonprofit leaders who have been in food advocacy and food provision for decades to make sure all the right conversation can happen to look at medium and long-term advocacy too. That's great. Yeah, I did have Billy Shore of No Kid Hungry on the show the other day, and he thinks that this is one of the more solvable problems, if you will, that we're dealing with right now. As difficult as it may be, at least there's something we can get our arms around and maybe really fix. And I admire that. Billy has been such an advocate for such a long time that I feel like his sense of history and possible is really important to that movement continuing to push its way forward. I'm glad you talked to him because I think he's a wise man in this arena. He is. He's not a mitigator. He's a fixer. (laughs) I mean, he was. And that's that's a great attitude in which to have. Well, talk a a little bit about some of the social enterprises and nonprofits that you partner with and support. They have all had a pivot and rethink their service delivery model. Tell us about some of the more interesting things that have gone on that have allowed them to, to work through this and serve the people that they serve during this pandemic. It's been, it's been really exciting and humbling. I, I was thinking about this and I brought you a couple examples. Um, we've worked with Nancy Lublin and her crisis text line team 
for many years. And their demand, not surprisingly, is up almost 50% right now. Americans, and often different demographics than who's historically called or texted in, asking for help, asking to be brought to a place where they can feel safety and look ahead to the next day. Crisis Text Line is loading thousands of new volunteers onto their platform, and they are just seeing this as an opportunity to respond and to care. I was talking to Evan Marwell at Education Superhighway, and what he was observing was, we need to figure out a way to connect students from their homes to education. And so he's currently been working, he's starting with San Francisco, but he's gonna work with a handful of school districts um, to figure out how to build a playbook so that then that can be distributed nationally to figure out the answer to this question, how do you help students from home to learn? And he's in a great position to do that after Education Superhighway closed that gap for 99% of our schools to allow them to help kids to learn digitally at school. That's pretty um, ironic too. He had just finished that up and had hooked all the schools yes. together. They were about to close down. And I then all know. Of a sudden, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have to connect homes. And through this new program that he has, that's just an amazing how quickly and nimbly he has been able to work that uh, in the Bay Area. And I know he's looking at Texas and Oregon and places yes. like that as well. Yeah. He's a very nimble leader and I think is one of those people that can't walk away from a good mission. I was also, the other, the other crew of folks who I've appreciated both they're working together and I think this mission is so important, but folks like the Bail Fund, I know you know Robin, Civil Rights Corps, Alex Karakatsanis' work, Recidiviz, they've been focused on reducing crowding in jails by releasing people, pregnant women, people who've served many years who were seniors, people who were being held for technical probation and parole violations, people who can't make their, their money bail but are actually pre-trial. Because if we can get more people out of our prisons, it's safer for the people who leave the prison and it's safer for the people who stay because there's more room for everybody, prisoners, guards, people who serve food in prisons. So I've also appreciated the advocacy that those teams have done. A lot of it is very data-focused, litigation-focused, but very strong and compelling, um, timely work. Mm -hmm. I'm based here in New York, and boy, there's an awful lot that's been going on. But I'd be curious as to what's been happening out in California, and are you involved in any of the initiatives that are going on out there? We have been. One thing I'll highlight, which kind of is a, a federal piece, and then I'm going to back into California, is we have a team, our hub team, which has historically done a lot of strong advocacy around immigration and immigration reform for a number of years. And I feel like last month, what I admired was they worked so hard to try to get undocumented people into stimulus bills. And that did not work. That did not happen. But now there are really important conversations happening in cities. They're happening in states that are looking at ways to create funds to specifically carve out dollars for undocumented people. California is a leader there. Mayor Newsom is a leader there. And Emerson, I'm really excited to share, is going to be uh, participating in that fund for California. And then I think because of the work of our hub and our immigration advocacy teams, we'll be trying to bring a lot of strong practices to other cities and to other states as they take on similar kinds of funds. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention here, because I think this is excellent work, Ijin Poo's work, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, mm -hmm. is also creating a fund for, for people who have been workers in people's homes, who have provided care, who are not in a position to benefit from stimulus packages. 
And I've also admired that work quite a lot. So we have really wanted to insert ourselves in that place because often those individuals don't feel like they have a voice because making themselves public has an enormous risk. And so other people need to take up that call. Yeah. I'm glad somebody's doing that. You watch the TV and you hear about every single organization and every kind of business and nonprofits or whatever, but that uh, population is never discussed in a way that what might be, and they're the ones who are the most vulnerable, have the least savings and are really in that precarious position. Anne-Marie, you've served on a lot, a lot of boards, both nonprofit boards, social enterprise organizations. How can a board chair, and by extension, the full board, support a CEO during a crisis such as this? And as a board member, what questions would you be asking of the CEO? Such excellent questions. And I have to say, such an important time for team leaders, day-to-day staff team leaders, and board to come together and be in conversation. If I were to step back a little bit, we've been doing a set of webinars for all of our grantees. We have webinar Wednesdays all through April and May on all different professional development topics. We have have two on governance, we have one on crisis communications, but one of them was on budgeting, budgeting in crisis, which we did with BridgeSpan, who's always been a great partner and is Mm -hmm. awfully good at taking tons of complicated content and bringing it into slides. And the three big takeaways from that webinar were manage your inflow of revenue, understand where you are in grant processes, do a weighted pipeline and see where you have softness there understand how your, your government contracts are working, understand where your earned income sits, but doing that diagnostic. The second place was manage cash, understand what cash you're spending is discretionary or not, understand which cash you must spend today, payroll, versus what you might push out a tiny bit, rent, buying more office supplies, and be conversant in that. And then the third piece was do scenario planning, and do scenario planning that moves from best case to likely possible sorts of cases to worst case, so that you go in to any situation understanding what choices you might make, because you've already thought about what at one time seemed like an impossible scenario and now has become a likely one. And I mention all this because I feel like a leadership team can have very good conversations about all three of those steps. But what's great about a board is a board is different people with different life experiences and skills and perspectives. And so by bringing your board into that conversation, you're going to get divergent questions asked. You're going to have people who do or don't more or less disagree or agree with different scenarios. And that probably will feel stressful and uncomfortable, but it will also lead you to a different set of outcomes, I think. It will push you in places you haven't been it will give you more preparation for what's ahead. And so I think being in conversation with your board is a really important place as you take on those three steps. I'd also just say tactically, boards and staff should probably be talking weekly. A board chair and a leader should probably be talking daily or every couple days. I think you should look at each board member and say, when can you be on call for me at any time? Because you have expertise around legal issues, finance, technology, human resources, may I call you because I have a feeling things are going to come up as these scenarios play out and I'm going to need help and I'm going to need wisdom and I would like you to be there because I know people would say, please call me, please call me Mm -hmm. day or night. And I guess the last thing I would say is a reminder that honestly, boards really are where the buck stops. That is what stewardship is. And if you don't let people in, 
and you come to a conversation that's very stressful and hard late, you have fewer choices and stress pushes people to make choices that seem simpler, but are often more myopic. And so yeah. a, a generative conversation sooner both gives you more options and doesn't press you to a place where even if you actually had other options, they get left on the table because there's stress. Yeah, and if I could add to that too, this is a time for an organization to really focus on its mission and why it exists and not be reluctant to go to the board and say, we need your help right now. Yeah. We need your fundraising help. I know many CEOs are reluctant because they know their board members are suffering in their own business, but this is not the time to be polite along those lines. You, if they're not going to step up now, when we will ever need them more than now to yeah. not only help financially, but to open up their own networks to help the organization through this crisis. I very much agree. And it is in times of crisis that you both see the, the best of people and people surprise you. And, and honestly, if you give people room, they usually surprise you in ways you look back and say, darn, didn't expect it, but that was great. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You have been very thoughtful about social change and Emerson has built an integrated model to bring about everything you said before, the communications, the marketing, the advocacy, the empathy, changing mindsets. But do you think, Anne-Marie, that the nature of social change is going to change in some fundamental way as a result of this COVID-19 pandemic? I do. I mean, I think, and this is a really obvious thing to say to, to get us started, I do think narrower design choices lead to really interesting, powerful outcomes. I do think when you are limited, you find paths that are just more creative. And so I think after this, our service provision will be stronger. We'll mm -hmm. have solved for corner cases. If I can't visit you and I need to talk to you on the phone. I, I was thinking about our Chicago CRED team, for example. CRED has historically done street outreach to young men who are really wrestling with violence on a daily basis. And one of the things CRED has realized is they have become community health workers in their community. When they do outreach, they're having conversations that are as much about public health as about public safety. And what's been interesting is because at Emerson, we have a portfolio in our global health part of our organization that focuses on community health workers, there's actually been a lot of learning and conversation there, which has been really fun to watch. But I feel like when CRED goes back to doing what it's done before, this will be a new tool in their toolbox. This will be a muscle that by definition, they'll think, oh yes, public safety and public health are deeply intertwined. We always knew that, but now we're gonna approach that in a way that has greater intentionality. So I do think our service provision will be stronger. And I think that we will hold innovation in a whole different way. One of the things I've always found hard about social innovation as a label is we sort of make it seem like it's for people who are specially trained or specially educated. Honestly, everyone is an innovator. I've always thought that was true, but I think now we're really seeing that in spades. We've been talking to, by the time we're done this four or six week period, we'll probably have talked to 80% of our grantees more than one time. And you kind of just leave those calls feeling in awe of when people don't feel like they have any options, they still find an option and they <laughs> serve. It's really powerful. Another thing I will say I think is gonna come from some of this because uh, I've watched who has had greater ease in their pivots are folks that have some level of technology enablement, that have a backbone that allows them to gather data, to make different kinds of choices, to simply be more efficient in understanding what's happening in their system, or to reply in real time to people because they can gather knowledge and use it. So I do think 
we're going to build toward more tech enablement. And I honestly think that will allow us to serve better. I think sometimes people feel like tech enablement can lead to not serving as humans. And I actually, this is what I mean is tech enablement, which will allow us to be more human because we simply understand and can make sense and therefore reach out more appropriately sooner. Yeah. Um, you know, observation I make about that too in terms of tech enablement, sometimes it's not the hardware or the equipment. There is a lack of technical competency in the sector. I would be exhibit A. I probably can use about 5% of the capacity of my iPad and probably 2% of my capacity of this computer. So I know a lot of people are saying we have to spend a lot of money. The first thing is train people to know what you got, to use what you have, and then take it from there. It's so true. Though I do think, and this is such a, a predictable thing to say, I have learned more about technology, not counting for my kids. I learn a lot about technology from my kids, but from the younger people on my team, who once yeah. in a while will literally like text me and say, what are you doing over there? Do you need me to come over and help you to do that? And then they'll come and then I'll, I, I'm, you know, I'm an old dog, but I can learn new tricks. Sure. And then I know, but yeah. I I think this might be one of those opportunities for the generational gap to get a tiny bit smaller. I agree with you. There are yeah. things to be learned. I'm sure you get those texts saying, really? With about 20 question marks after it, like this, you know what you're doing? So this is a case of reverse mentoring and that is for sure. I think you're right. Yeah, and I appreciate it. I also say, I do think we're at a pivot where recognizing, and this is not a new thing to say, I just feel if I didn't say it, it would not be right. I think we're at a juncture point where we can choose to include a greater number of people in our solutions, which given that we're all deeply intertwined anyway, we haven't all maybe noticed that, but it is true, our solutions will be stronger if they solve for more people with different sorts of needs. But how and are we going to go about that? Because I mean, that's my final question, really. How are we going to reimagine capitalism? We don't want to do what we did after the 2008-2009 crisis. We did not build and an inclusive, sustainable, diverse recovery. And we don't want to make that mistake again. What do we need to do to do it differently this time? I think that we need, at least I'll think about it from the Emerson lens. One of the things we've thought about is that when we look out in the world in a year or two, there are leaders who are in a position to know needs and to tell truths and to, if they're given room, voice where resources need to go. And we need to assure that they're in a place to lead and to have a platform to be able to do that. So I know one of the things we've talked about is how do we assure that leaders who we know can share those important observations are in places to do so. I think we also, and we've thought about this a lot with the food fund, for example, we also need, I think, to shine a bigger light on the people who are the fabric of our country. And so one of the things the Food Fund's been doing a lot of storytelling around are the people who every day show up and serve food to the kids in our cafeterias, who now continue to do that, even though it's not particularly safe for them to do so. The bus drivers who then drive that food to families' homes who can't get access. We haven't talked about them at all, but our farm workers, many of whom are undocumented, many of whom are going out and planting and picking our food without PPEs, who are not actually in our health safety net. So I think a piece of it is around storytelling, understanding who the people are that make up the fabric of our society, who we all want and need to feel included and be included, 
And that's both financially and sort of psychosomatic, like psycho living wise, because we actually need, I think, to change the social compact. I think we need to understand where our taxes go. We need to understand how and why we're choosing toward different things and what the implications are for the people who are most affected. But then in the end, we're all affected. And I think we need to understand that. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, along those same lines, we need to reset our values as a society and determine who we're going to celebrate and who we're going to ignore. And we perhaps have not been celebrating the right people based on that value set. And as that changes, maybe the people that you're talking about will be elevated in a different sense. That is my hope, because they are people who are working very hard to make the America that we live in, we just don't necessarily always see them, but they are there and they are building the, the foundation of who we are as a nation. Yeah. My final comment will be to say that I just love the Ralph Waldo Emerson quote you have on your homepage, which reads, this time, like all times, is a very good one if we but know what to do with it. That is just perfect. It's always such a delight to speak with you, Anne-Marie, and I want to let you know how grateful I am to you uh, for being able to take a few moments today to share all this information with us. Thanks so much, and be well. Denver, be well to you as well, and it's always a treat, and thank you for asking thoughtful questions and caring deeply. Thank you.